I'm Chris Reback. This is Call In. With Dr. Alexandria White, we discuss business leadership in our time of social change, when to call in, when to call out, and how to build sustainable business value today. Before our conversation, though, an ask from us to you. We hope you like these call-in conversations, and if so, we'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Our show is brought to you by Clayton Dubalier and Rice, which is committed to a more diverse and inclusive future. Let's call in. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. We're looking forward to getting to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. Why don't we start at that high level? If you would please describe Avid Bank. What are your business lines? Whom do you serve? What defines and differentiates who you are, who the bank is? Avid Bank, we're just over $2 billion in assets. We are a commercial bank and obviously based here in San Jose. We have five verticals, if you will, that we participate and lend in. We're $2 billion in assets. We're about 150 employees. 50 of those employees are remote permanently remote that do not have an office to go to. If there's any benefit from the pandemic, it got us thinking a little bit differently about where people needed to be, even though I thought we were progressive beforehand, but we weren't. What we've learned recently is is that we can get better talent in locations, not having to have them come to the most expensive real estate and cost of living place on the planet, which is the Bay Area here. So we've always tried to be more innovative and inclusive, so much so when we moved out of our Palo Alto headquarters from 10,000 feet to 33,000 feet, there's not a C-suite. There's only nine private offices in 30,000 feet. We don't have man doors that open and close on our offices. They're all glass. So this whole thing about transparency that we tried to grow where there's access to the C-suite, that everybody's got a role here. And if they devalue somebody, that's just not the way it should be. I mean, I have a great title, but I need a lot of people that do a lot of things to help make this organization look good. And everybody here has a purpose. We have outstanding talent for a bank our size. You know, when you're talking about a $2 billion bank and some of the other ones that are out there in our spaces are 10, 15, 100 times our size. But we have people with 30, 40 years experience that buy into our value system, buy into our value propositions. So they get big bank, sophisticated counsel in a small Mm -hmm. organization, Mm -hmm. hungry touch atmosphere. Thank you for that, Mark. I have had the pleasure of working with your wonderful employees over the past three years. Banking is about relationships. I used to be a banker for six years. That's how I worked my way through college. I remember back then it was a bank in um, Indiana. We never talked about diversity, equity, inclusion, Bloomington, Indiana. And now it is everywhere in the banking sector. It is ESG, it's diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. It's making sure that if we're going to have investors and things like that, that it's going to be a diverse slate of investors or people that we want to do business with. What is your journey as a CEO of a $2 billion bank? What's your insight on diversity, equity, and inclusion? One of the things that's kind of fun about our organization is that the diverse company that we do have, both from a gender and race perspective, is so organic, just real. So when these topics rose as much as they did over the last three or four years, we started looking at what we were doing 
And we were actually pretty good, especially in the financial services industry and certainly the banking industry, given gender and people of color. So I didn't have to be sold on this as a good idea. Right. I learned why it was a good idea. We just were hiring the best people that we could find. And the culture we created was inclusive even before inclusive was the hot topic. We have lunches together. We have play together. We work together. We have all sorts of things to do together to protect the culture. And this has started off by we wanted to have an environment that was more important than just a paycheck That's or right. a title. I wanted to make it difficult for somebody to leave because people are going to leave for better opportunities. That's, uh-huh. but I wanted a bite at the apple or I wanted them in tears on the way out the door. You know, wow. that was the whole idea. Wow. Because I would say, that's a great opportunity, Chris, go take it. You've deserved it. You've worked hard. Positions fill here or whatever, the, whatever it may be, but you got to take that. That's the culture that we embarked on probably about eight or nine years ago. Well, you are exactly right in regards to growing up. I think it's very important that people know where people came from and how it impacts how they show up as business leaders, as colleagues, as change agents. So for you, can you tell us a little bit about that personal journey from where you grew up to now understanding diversity, equity, and inclusion and how it impacts colleagues and companies? Well, you know, I think we're all products of our environment. Yes. I grew up in Detroit born a long time ago. So I was born in in 1960. And you can imagine I was in Detroit from 1960 to 1978 Mm -hmm. before I went to Stanford. Things were much different in the 60s and 70s from an information standpoint, from an awareness standpoint. Fortunately, I came from a large family of five boys and we all played sports and sports were just a great way to meet people and to compete. That's right. That afforded me an opportunity to go leave the public school system and uh, go to Catholic League school. Football was my primary sport at that point to have colleges take a look at you. Fortunately, at the end of the day, I ended up getting a full ride offer to Stanford. And that's how I ended up in California, which at that time was just like being on the moon. I grew up very, very, very middle class. I mean, the first plane I was ever on was on my recruiting trips. So ended up changing my life by leaving Detroit and coming out here. But uh, (laughs) I do think from then on, it was just a work hard, be true to yourself kind of a thing. And doors opened at that point. And every position that I had, uh, you know, was through connections and through hard work. And, you know, I took over as CEO in 2012. In 2010 or 11, if you asked me if I was going to be CEO of this bank, even though I was already chairman, I would have told you you're nuts. It just felt right at the time. And here we are, you know, I took it over and we were about 300 million, 350 million, and we're 2.2 billion at this point. So it's been a fun journey, but it's not without its challenges. It's good to know people's background. It shows how you show up as a leader. You mentioned the inclusive feeling that you've really worked to create at your bank. And you really characterize that as a sentiment, as emotion, feeling about belonging. And you didn't talk about, and this is a point of curiosity, many discussions today around inclusiveness, it's about gender, it's about race, it's about background. And so I'm wondering, what does an inclusive environment mean to you? What I've tried to create in being inclusive Mm -hmm. is accessible, is having a dialogue, because it's my feeling in general, if you've got two willing parties that are honest with each other, you can find a solution, unless you've run it off the rails. And so I'll go back to what I said earlier about everybody has a role. When I first started my first company, my largest investor was just outside Munich in Germany, ran a series of wellness clinics, had 3,000 employees. He picked me up at the airport. First time I ever visited his headquarters, picked me up at the airport, drove me down to Bad Fussing, 
I checked into his wellness center and we pulled up and they, it's a hotel as well. All sorts of people work there, you know, baggage people, uh, cleaning people, doctors, the whole thing. He took my suitcase out of the trunk. He wouldn't let me carry it. Several of his employees came over and said, here, I'll take that. And I got it. He walked me himself up to the sixth floor to my room. And I was there for a couple of days and he just observed. He talked to everybody from his CEO to doctors, to nurses, to bedpan cleaners, you name it, Mm because everyone had a role there. He made himself completely accessible to his people because he knew he was going to hear the real story from whoever he was talking to, if in fact they weren't intimidated by him. That always stuck with me, how humble he was, especially in a country like Germany. And this is in the early 90s. So this is when it was still more formal than it is today. He was unique in that way. And so the companies I ran previous to this all had maybe a maximum of 20 people. When I came into this organization, you know, it took me a while to figure out what we wanted to be and what I needed to do because I had to figure out who the employees were. And that accessibility matters. Is that another form of inclusiveness or inclusivity? Yeah, I think it is at the end of the day. Find the common ground that's needed, be interested, care, and that goes a long way. That's what we've tried to create here. Have young people having access to more senior people, getting the truth, having collaboration. I mean, in the environmental graphics that we have around here that Alex and Diane have seen, it's all came from the employees based on surveys. Tell me some adjectives about what it takes to be here at Abbott. That works from a business and social standpoint. If in fact, you'd really want to understand the person on the other side of the table or persons on the other side of the table, and you know what drives Chris or what he might be thinking about or Diane or or Alec for that matter, that's really what we wanted to do is have this open, transparent atmosphere because I tell everybody I don't like surprises, so I don't want to be surprised. So I don't plan on surprising anybody here to the best of my ability. And I think that's just evolved. That concept has evolved into more sophisticated inclusion, but that is based on having more people than one or two driving the bus because now we're a pretty diverse company and it's important to a lot of people and they can run with it and promote that culture because it is in their DNA. So you Mm -hmm. talked about inclusion with your company and your colleagues, but we know that Avid Bank is more than brick and mortar. So where does this inclusive sense of belonging, how are you stretching it into the community? We know the Community Reinvestment Act for Black and Brown neighborhoods, financial literacy. What is Avid Bank doing to stretch that into the community? We've done a number of things. And what I wanted to try and create was something that we can lean into besides just writing checks. We have a lot, really a lot of great people here. You know, some of us are becoming dinosaurs, but our younger people are unbelievable how they can relate to a person younger than them a little bit better than maybe I can being the, you know, the old white guy CEO. You know, we've gotten behind some organizations like Ace Charter Schools, which serves East San Jose, Peninsula Bridge, Junior Achievement, where we put on these internships and events for people at a young age that would not be exposed to this type of atmosphere unless they were in some sort of organization that they could get here. So we have internships every summer that run for three weeks for anywhere from five to 10 people so they can get exposed to what else is out there. All they know about a bank is you get a, you have a checking account and, mm-hmm. and mom goes to the ATM or something like that. <laughs> okay. And be able to have lunch every day, have badges and a computer and be lectured to and do these projects and they can see other opportunities. And that's all we want to do. We're not trying to recruit them to the banking industry. We want to expose them to as much as possible. We've done financial literacy classes to the parents of these organizations, as well as the students. 
really getting behind things in the community besides just writing checks. It's worked really well for us. We pack fruit, we read to second graders or first graders. We do all sorts of things in the community and people really get into it because it's not a one and done type of thing that right. we not only write a check, but we do show up and give some people hours that are pretty significant. Mark, this is a podcast for business leaders, business people, people worried about bottom lines, worried about stakeholders, worried about shareholders, revenue. What's the business case? And some of the context around that is you're as aware as we are that fingers have been pointed very recently around some of the banking failures that some of the companies, they were too woke. They were too focused on DEI. They took their eyes off the ball. And the implication is that that directly negatively influenced the bottom line that got them into financial trouble. What's the business case for your argument for inclusiveness? First, I might add that one of the unfortunate things about the environment that we're in is people choose to focus on the wrong things. And I think that narrative about them being too focused on DEI or ESG or inclusion is one of those things that are not focused on the right things, first of all. Could you make an argument that they took their eye off the ball? I could argue all day that they took their eye off the ball because it was a self-inflicted failure at this point. Would I blame it on one segment or this segment? The answer is that I don't see that. They're a much smarter organization than that that put that as number one priority and have it go south. So the business case to do it is I didn't realize how important it was because I never had to articulate it very much. What we started several years ago was more of this accessibility, which turns out to be inclusiveness, where everybody's rowing the same oar. We didn't know mm -hmm. we were doing it. It just happens. And so our company is diverse from a gender perspective. I mean, full-time employees, I think the number's like 51% men and 49% women at this point. And we mm -hmm. are on the high 40s of non-white. So we didn't do this with a necessarily a plan in mind. The business case has played out for itself. And I didn't even realize that until I talked to Diane and to Alex about, okay, <laughs> define these things for me. I don't understand what you're, you're saying. You were already doing them. You were already about do doing yeah. it. Where since we are significantly women and non-white, we see the benefit of that because we can tackle darn near any problem out there. I don't think the white people here, the non-white people here, the males or the females have any specific agenda out there to grow their sector. It just happens organically. And I think the communication that we have in this organization, which is never perfect, but I don't think people are scared or concerned to speak their minds, which is I wanted to have it. I don't want anybody saying it's not my business or this, I'm out mm -hmm. of my lane. If you're out of your lane, you got to be really outside your lane. But if you see something, you got to say something. If something's not working right. And I think that's the whole dynamic where people aren't scared to talk. And therefore, let's bring the problems forward to a senior executive. Let's spot the areas that aren't going real well or are rocky or whatever it is. And let's fix them and not let them fester till they break. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the benefit, not just to the outside community, but building a trusting environment internally gives you a lot sooner look at your problems, which gives you a lot better opportunity to fix them as opposed to being too late. So what you are describing is called psychological safety, Mark. What do you say to the CEO who's listening right now to say, I'm not quite there. I don't want to be canceled. I want to be where Mark is, but I'm just a little hesitant. What would you say to him or her? I think it's okay to say or to tell people you're trying to influence, I don't know quite what I'm doing, mm -hmm. but this is where I want to get to. And this is what I think we should be doing and build some consensus. It will take being a little vulnerable. 
telling your C-suite, I think this is important. I'm not that good at it, or I am uncomfortable, or I am comfortable, whatever the whatever the narrative is, you got to start somewhere and kind of break it apart a little bit to see what you want to do and not try and be everything to everybody, because we're certainly not. I think mm-hmm. you got to take, what do I have? How can I develop what I have to establish the credibility of what we have before I embark on another program? Because if you don't have buy-in from a number of people inside the organization, you'll be chasing your tail. You work with what you have internally first by telling where we want to go, build the credibility there, and then take it on the road, however that may go, whatever your objectives are. Thank you. Mark, thank you. I'm hearing that these are efforts that require some parts of leadership, some parts of listening, some parts of action, some parts of corrective action, perhaps. And maybe that all goes under leadership. Thank you for the time that you've taken with us. And thank you for what seems to be obvious, the care that you take with your employees, your team, your colleagues, and the assets that are under your care. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and I wish you all the best and hope to see you again sometime soon.